Welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast, making health and safety as important as everything else we do in business. Hi there, it's Colin Nottage here and welcome to the Interesting Health and Safety podcast. This week we're on episode one of a uh, a two-parter that we're doing with Adam Johns. Um, Adam is not a uh, health and safety professional, he's a flight safety professional. Um, worked for a number of years for uh, for Qantas, uh, back in the UK at the moment. Um, and uh, he's just got loads and loads and loads to say. Um, you know, that's why we're doing it over two episodes, because we just, we just couldn't stop talking, really. Anyway, I'm going uh, to get straight back into it, and then we'll have a catch-up at the end. My background is probably a little bit different to some of the people you may have interviewed before on here or some of the people that listen. So I'm basically a flight safety guy. Um, so my background isn't health and safety, although it, that's an area that I have looked at um, and worked worked on in my most previous role. So I started out, you know, I, I sort of take you very briefly back to my childhood. Um, like like many uh, young boys in particular, I was very keen to be an airline pilot. Um, right. Was lucky enough to do a lot of travel as a child because uh, my mum's a travel agent. So went on a lot of planes and you know. Big, planes make a lot of noise, go fast. So, you know, I built up this whole thing about being an airline pilot. Um, I then went to university and did a degree in what's called aviation technology. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was kind of, uh, I call it aerospace engineering for people that didn't want to do so much maths. Okay. Um, So it was more about the airline industry, but with a specific focus on on flying. We did a bit about safety, um, um, but also a bit on um, economics and um, aerodynamics and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when I graduated, I, I kind of lost, by that time, I'd sort of lost a bit of an interest in the flying side of things. And mm-hmm. I'd done a dissertation um, that was around a flight safety topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when I sort of started to think about, well, maybe safety is, a, is an area that I might want to get into. Yeah, yeah. And what was that at Leeds? Was it Leeds you were in? It was, yeah. Leeds were the first university to offer this particular course, which was mm-hmm. essentially more of a practical themed aviation degree rather than, like I say, aerospace engineering, which was, you know, much more focused on the on the mathematics and the physics side of things. I am. Um, I went to Leeds Uni. So, okay. Uh, yeah, many years, many, many years ago. So I was there in, um, <laughs> I was there in the uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, okay. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did a degree in uh, quarry engineering, which was uh, they, oh, they, used wow. to, they used to be a big mining, uh, mining and quarrying department there. It's all it's all moved down to Derby now, but um, okay. um yeah, but it was uh, what, what a what a great city. I absolutely love. Yeah, it. yeah, it's a great place. And I've got friends. Um, well, I've actually got family who uh, who live in Leeds, so uh, so we get um, you know, we get we get up up there fairly regularly. Actually, it's a, a great great place. So you've totally seen how much it's, you've seen how much it's changed over the last um, few years. I mean, uh, between when I I graduated there in two thousand and nine, right, um, and between then and I think I went back to give a presentation to the university in about twenty fourteen, so mm-hmm. five years, and the whole landscape of the city centre was completely different. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's quite, so, quite amazing. Yeah. No. It's um. No. It's a really really forward thinking really forward thinking city, and uh, mm. loads going on down there. I was fortunate enough to move. Move from there. I went down to Bristol, and uh, Bristol again, another another great city, which has also got you know sort of a lot of uh, um, aviation links, isn't it? You know, there's a lot. Uh, it does, yeah. A lot going on there. A lot going on down yeah. there. So, so sorry, I, I cut right across you there. Where, where, That's where, okay. Where did you go to there? What happened then? 
so, um, so basically, I had the opportunity to either go and become a commercial pilot through the, the training programs that you can do that take about 18 months, two years. Mm -hmm. um, but I also got a job offer within a, a company that's a supplier to the aviation industry. Um, and they supplied um, what we call flight data monitoring uh, solutions. So what most people know of as the black box. Yeah. Um, there's actually a second black box that sits at the front of the aircraft, not the rear, which records all of the data for every single flight and is analyzed um, as, a, as part of a program. Every single flight gets analyzed rather than the traditional black box is just recorded, um, you know, just downloaded after an accident. Yeah. So I was supporting airlines who were outsourcing that activity from their safety management system. Mm -hmm. um, and from, from there, I moved on to Virgin Atlantic, where I was um, a, a safety data analyst. And I think a lot of people that get into safety, um, whether it's flight safety or health and safety, it seems that that kind of data analysis is kind of an area where you cut your teeth, okay. um, you know, play, playing around with spreadsheets. If you haven't kind of come off the tools, so to speak, mm -hmm. if you've gone straight into it, into a safety role from, from graduating. So that, that's a really good way to kind of learn the data, learn, learn the context of how the work gets done. Um, so doing a lot of data analysis work there. I then moved on to the Civil Aviation Authority, which is the, as you might expect, is the regulator for, for aviation in the UK and doing a similar role, but maybe slightly more senior. And it was there that I started to engage with new ideas around um, uh, kind of thinking about things in a more performance and risk-based way, because the CAA at the time was trying to introduce um, a performance-based approach to the way it regulated. So going beyond compliance, essentially saying, well, actually, yes, we, we need to make sure organizations are compliant with rules, whether they're set by the UK or Europe. Um, but actually, we need to go beyond that. We need to start having conversations with our regulated community about how they're managing safety performance beyond the regulatory requirements. So at CAA, I was helping to develop tools and, and processes for our um, inspectors to go and have those conversations. Um, and also to ensure that when the information that that generated came back into the organization, we had a safety management system for the regulator that could help us to build these risk and performance pictures of the industry. So mm -hmm. that you could say, okay, what's the, what's the amount of risk? And what are the risks within the um, airline sector? What about airports? What about air traffic control? What about maintenance facilities? Mm -hmm. And then you can scale it up and build it until you get like a, a kind of a total system risk picture. Um, but just to kind of fast forward, so then I, I always had a desire to work abroad and a job came up in Hong Kong uh, working for Cathay Pacific. Um, Cathay Pacific, one of the jokes we have had there was that it's Asia's best kept secret. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> unlike Singapore Airlines or Qatar Airways or, or Japan Airlines, Cathay Pacific isn't necessarily as well known outside of Asia mm -hmm. um, because it doesn't have Hong Kong in its title. Yeah. Um, but Cathay Pacific is a really large airline out there, 20,000 plus employees, 200 aircraft, um, you know, 13 billion US dollars revenue mm. annually um, on average. So I was working there as a, as a safety manager, basically. So working on supporting the airline to manage its safety risks. And that was everything from flight safety, engineering safety, ground safety, and uh, occupational health and safety. So making sure that the planes stay in the sky, but also trying to keep people who are flying them and fixing them and working on them safe as well. Mm. Um, Hong Kong, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go to Hong Kong a few times because I've, uh, I've got a friend in the police out there. And um, and uh, the airport was it used to be called, was it Kai Tak? Kai Tak, yeah. Yeah, and um, I can remember watching, a, watch, I went to watch a game of football 
and it was right under the the flight path into the airport and uh and the cafe pacific planes had a slightly different um sort of way that they came into the airport than all the others mm. i don't know why i don't know why they had why it was slightly different you might be able to tell us i don't know you may not you may not know i don't know but uh it's really really yeah. interesting. They were so low they were coming over the top of where we were watching the football the, the only rationale i could think for that would be that just by that being the home base yeah. that there was a certain kind of extra level of expertise that right. went into the approach versus say if you only flew in there as a, as a pilot from a foreign carrier okay i get you i get you but the new airport is amazing as well and it's uh you're just a phenomenal feat you know just uh just building it in the first place just let's go, let's go yeah. flat on that island and uh, yeah, yeah and we'll, we'll put a runway there and then we'll and then we'll do an amazing system for getting people from the airport into the into the center I mean, it's just uh, it is quite amazing yeah yeah, and they're actually in the process of building a third runway now. So they're kind of right. increasing the size of the uh, reclaimed land by fifty percent at least. Wow. Yeah, and for that whole area, there's you know you can't go anywhere in Hong Kong without seeing some scaffolding or some some reclaiming or or any form of construction or development. It's just constant. Mm. And then obviously in twenty nineteen they finished the uh, Macau Bridge as well, right. which is the long the longest uh, sort of sea bridge in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, I mean, that that must have uh, must have cost billions and billions. But that's obviously part of China's uh, Belt and Road mm. uh, initiative. No, fantastic. So, so how long were you out in Hong Kong yourself for then? Um, I was there for just over four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, my partner and I, uh, we kind of joke that we we didn't really want to leave our jobs, um, but we had a desire to move back to the UK. Mm. Um, so we'd made that decision. Um, you know, a year or so before we actually returned. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously we weren't to know <laughs> that uh, <laughs> we would be returning to the UK um, in, a, in, in the situation it and the world is in as, as, as we stand right now. Mm. And there's, uh, I mean, there's, there's massive, massive issues with the airline, the airline sector now. I mean, it's, uh, it's I, I don't know, I don't know how it's, um, it's going to recover. You know, I think there's, there's been a big announcement today, I think, isn't there, for, uh, you know, a load of, um, a load of Lufthansa, I think it is, of, uh, have made a lot of redundancies today. So yeah, there's a lot of airlines being bailed out by various governments, including Cathay Pacific, have actually just had um, a bailout of some some sort from the Hong Kong government. Um, but that obviously doesn't really take into account the fact that it's probably going to take the airline industry three or four years to recover back to sort of 2019 figures mm-hmm. um, for various different reasons. But obviously, regardless of a bailout, you know these organisations can't keep people employed that are just going to sit around doing nothing. You know, a lot a lot of airlines have scaled down their operations to you know five or you know ten or even five percent of what they normally are. Mm-hmm. So you've got pilots and cabin crew and, and other people just sort of sitting around doing nothing. Mm. Um, and and then obviously that brings in some of the safety concerns about things like skill erosion. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, how and, and you know how are the how is the industry going to stop that that from happening then you know the the standards dropping because i think you know hopefully what we'll talk about shortly is 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 some of the reasons that the that the airline industry has a good record and an amazing mm. record really you know but um you know but how are they going to stop that 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 from eroding i think they're going to have to make a huge use of simulators okay um i think there might have to be a little bit of a revolution in how pilot training takes place Mm-hmm. Pilot training, whether you go back to, you know, learning to fly a two-seater uh, propeller plane, whether you go to you know, learning to fly a, 
um, a commercial little jet or anything in between. The training system is very old. It was, you know, it was originally developed in you know, post-war and had some sort of minor, minor developments to it. But on the whole, the system still operates in the way it always has, which is, you know, you, you get checked for your, your license every six months. You go through this kind of training cycle, which is traditionally quite predictable. Um, you know, and, and there's not a lot of surprise in it. Um, you've got a lot more automation coming into these aircraft now. Mm-hmm. Um, over 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 the recent times, which is all contributed to skill erosion, yep. and I think the the only way that airlines are going to be able to maintain or, or to prevent skill erosion any further is to make as much use as possible of simulators, but perhaps change the way they use the simulator, to mm-hmm. change the the way they train in order to try and you know ensure that these skills are not are not lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so you you were talking about about your your role um, that you were doing, and it, it, you know, had a big um, you know, there was a big emphasis about keeping planes on the ground, but also you know, also looking after the people on the ground. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that then? About the, I mean, do, do you need different approaches for those different environments, or or do you try to get you know sort of some some commonality to how you do things? Hmm. The interesting thing about the airline industry is that. You know, even just within one company, you have such a huge variety of work that takes place mm. that until you kind of drill down into the into the specifics of the context, you don't understand how complex it really is. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, you know, just on the face of it, you've got pilots, um, you've got cabin crew, you've got engineers, you've got ground handlers, you've got cargo staff, and obviously you've got everybody else in the more kind of uh, white collar office world that supports all that activity. Um, so, and then you have to think about what you might kind of broadly term process safety, mm-hmm. um, and, and the occupational safety side of things. What I would say is that there are a lot of common approaches to how you would manage the risks associated with all of that, but then there's a lot of nuanced ways that you have to deal with it because ultimately you're dealing with people with different professional identities. There are different organizational subcultures. I'm not going to talk about safety cultures because I'm I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that term. Yeah. Um, but I you know I I won't deny that you know there are subcultures within organisations whether it's professional or whether it's functional. Um, you know it could even go down to an individual small department because you know cultures are driven by by the leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you do need to adopt different approaches. Um, and obviously when you're working in the, in an airline like Cathay Pacific, which is very multinational. That adds an extra dimension of complexity to it because you're dealing with, for instance, a pilot body that's predominantly Western, certainly in the more senior levels, but you have more and more um, local Hong Kong Chinese people coming through that system. But then you go to the cargo and the ground handling environment and it is exclusively local Chinese. Um, And and the kind of the more of the the national or or the, the cultures of where those people have come from play into that as well. Mm. So trying to push, let's say, for instance, trying to push more progressive ideas about how to manage safety um, is possibly a bit easier um, when you're dealing with a more Western um, mindset than dealing with the more the more local mindset. That's not an ex- exclusive thing, but that, mm. in my experience, was something that was that was quite obvious. Mm. So how did you? So how do you go about about? taking that that more progressive approach then into into the business is 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 it about you know sort of getting the people at the top 
on board and then and then taking it down or is it is it about trying to get a, a groundswell from the, from the ground of people who want to do you know do things i mean they're the experts aren't they you know the people that are doing the job yeah. it's, it's about getting that getting that information out of them how do you you know how, how, did, how did you go about it um so i mean if, if you've listened to any of the other podcasts i've done i've talked a little bit about um what we tried to do at cafe one of the main lessons i learned was that you know trying to introduce some of these new ideas that you know if you want to label them safety to or safety differently or harp or resilience or i'm not really that interested in in the label it's about what what what's the mindset what mindset are you trying to bring to the organization what what new paradigm are you trying to bring to the organization um i spent an, a, quite a bit of time um trying to develop a strategy in a very traditional sense of how to how to put together a program that could move the move the organization from where it was to where i thought it should be around safety and i quickly learned that that was not the right way to go about it the right way wasn't to to sit at a computer and put together some big document and plan that, that i'm going to execute the best way to do it was to just talk and listen um so myself and a couple of other people who kind of were of this particular mindset just started having conversations in a very organic way no kind of big strategic plan behind it apart from we would like to move the organization's mindset from here to there um, or at least move you know start start that journey so be it in a safety meeting be it in you know a one-to-one -one conversation you know be it over lunch or whatever you just start to introduce new thoughts new ideas new language both with management and leaders but also with frontline people as well so for instance one one thing that, that worked very well for us at cafe was we had the opportunity to talk to our training captains about what we were trying to do in in, in moving safety safety management forward and there was a really interesting sort of situation that occurred in, during during some workshops that we had with these training captains so there was about 300 350 of them across about 10 12 workshops we we spoke to them about trying to move safety in in, in, a, in a new direction so what we did was we said we'd like to think about the last time you went flying and when you're thinking about that think about what things influenced your performance both positively and negatively so what we might call performance shaping factors or conditions and influences and within groups of four or five to write down on a flip chart you know what what are all these factors that influence their performance um and you know you come up with things like you know the aircraft had technical problems or the flight crew had certain levels of experience um that they were fatigued that they hadn't flown for a while all these different factors um that were both kind of systemic or kind of quite local to that flight and then once we'd gone through all of these issues with them we asked them the question how many of you reported this issue via our safety reporting system to the company and almost no hands go up and that's you know it was a really powerful um example really for both people presenting and the management that were in the room and and the pilots themselves that a lot of what goes on every single day, albeit we might we might look at it and say that's really challenging and that's really difficult. These people are just getting on with it. This is just normal to them, you know. So if you're flying from Hong Kong to Manila, 
and you're having to deal with really, really challenging air traffic control and challenging airspace. Um, you're just you're just used to that. That's just how you go about your job, um, and that's that's normal work. And understanding that that happens, but it doesn't get reported, kind of opens your eyes up to say, well, actually, there's a huge amount of learning opportunity out there that we're not getting because the system that we have set up today doesn't really ask the, for that information or doesn't have a give us an easy way to collect that information. So it's a, it's a really powerful way to kind of understand that there's a lot more out there than we're actually getting in safety in terms of information, intelligence and, and insight. And that's, I mean, that's very much, uh, you know, David Proven talks a lot about, you know, the, uh, the work um, as perceived against the work as done. And I think, you know, that's, 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 you know, there's, there's a real big, there's a potential for a big disconnect between what, people think is happening and how it actually is and you know and and, and like you say you know people are really adaptable aren't they people people yeah. deal with stuff and and we and and, and we've got to play praise people for doing that but then yeah. you know when it doesn't go quite right we mustn't then criticize them you know because it's you know that's when you stop the learning isn't it when, yeah and, and just just coming back to that point the point about language and you mentioned sort of work is imagined and work is done one of the things that we we did was um, we started to, to introduce new terms and new concepts through a bite size um, in a bite size fashion to the management through safety committees. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I would do is I would share an article, something to read that that would take no longer than five minutes to read um, with the agenda pack, and then in the in the meeting, I would deliver a short presentation which would attempt to start a discussion about that topic and to just explain it and say well how how is this interesting to us one of the um topics i talked about was um the varieties of work so work is imagined work is prescribed work is disclosed and work is done but if we just take the two main ones work is imagined and work is done the uh, what i find interesting is that until people understand that that is even a thing they don't actually realize that work is imagined and work is done a different because they've never had that idea, they've never been provided with that way of thinking that actually what we think happens and what actually happens are two very different things. Um, although there's some degree of overlap, there's a lot of non-overlap. And I think implicitly people do realize that that's the case. They kind of know that what they've prescribed or what they think happens isn't exactly what does happen, but they haven't kind of crystallized it into a concept and by just giving people that language that vocabulary to say work is imagined and work is done you start to find that by the time you get to the next safety meeting that's almost become endemic within the conversation and people start talking about work is imagined and work is done and another one was um talking about um efficiency thoroughness trade-off or you might just call it trade-offs right you start, you explain to people that there's this concept of an efficiency thoroughness trade-off. And then by the next meeting, people are talking about trade-offs and goal conflicts. So one of the main things I learned about trying to move an organization in a new direction is that you have to change the conversation. You know, if, if the limits of our language or the limits of our world um, or, or word, words create worlds, then we cannot make sense of the world if we don't have a language to do so. Mm. So I, what I find, you know, trying to bring in new thoughts and new ideas and new practices about safety, it's about changing the language 
that people use to describe it as a problem or as a challenge um, rather than rather than trying to make these sort of superficial changes you know i'm going you know, talking about safety culture change everything starts at language we've got to get down into the roots of language change you know move away from this more pejorative um, language that we've always used to associate with safety and move towards a more neutral um, language which is more about it's more of an observational language. It's more of a language of curiosity than it is a language of judgment. Uh, that sounds that sounds great because I it's interesting. I was I was having a chat only, only yesterday with, uh, with with a client and um, and uh, there was there was there was three of us on, on a Zoom chat like this and, and and two of them were having a bit of a debate about whether it should be called an accident or an incident and and there was it's, it's it's an event. It's it's, it's something that's happened. Mm. Okay, you know, let, let's you know, hey, let, let's call it a learning event. You know, you know, you know, and let's and let's you know, let's learn. You know, let's, let's yeah. change that, change that language away from it being very, you know, like you say, very, very judgmental. You know, and we're yeah. going to investigate an accident. No, we're going to we're going to learn from something that happened. Is, yeah, uh, I mean, in, investigating is something that police do, um, and and the FBI and and and, and organisations like that. Mm. You know, it, it's quite a grandiose term to investigate. And yes, it it may it may be acceptable for maybe a you know a government body like a air accident investigation um, unit to call it an investigation because maybe you're dealing with you know a high fatality accident or something. But if you know if we're if we're dealing with you know somebody who has slipped over or or we're dealing with you know in my in my world you know a, a flight safety event where maybe for instance two aircraft have lost separation um, you know come closer than they should have done. Mm-hmm. Calling it an investigation is quite grandiose, isn't it? Mm. Um, and it's, and it, for me, it automatically conjures up judicial metaphors, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I totally agree. And, and one of the criticisms of this language change is that it's just semantics. You know, that, that is often a, a criticism that's thrown, you know, this, oh, this is just semantics. But actually, the language we use really does set up the way that people think and the mental models people use so if you call it an in, you know an incident investigation mm. and you and you ask the person involved in the incident to come in for an interview then you've automatically created this judicial environment where you've you you've been involved in something and we're we want to un, we want to kind of get to the bottom of it and then you start to conjure up these images in people's minds that there's they're going to be judged that they're going to be disciplined Mm. Even if they're not, even if you even if you do have some semblance of a just culture, you you want people to come in and not just be willing to help you. Sorry, not just be able to help you, but be willing to help you. And if you start talking about investigations and interviews, then you're probably not going to make them willing to help you. If you start talking about learning opportunities or learning events, yes, some people might call that fluffy language or, or semantics, but actually what it's doing is it's setting that person up to be willing to help you. Could you come in for a meeting so that we can all learn about this event that you have been involved in so that we can improve the system as a result? And I think it's in, in some ways it's a subtle but fundamental change. And even better to say, can we come and see you? <laughs> you know, rather than yeah. coming in, can we come and see you to learn, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. in your environment where you're comfortable rather than bringing you into our environment where, where we're yeah. comfortable? and that's absolutely um, you know that's, that's it's um it's interesting i was having a chat with um um uh simon bowen I don't know if you know simon 
He, um, I know of him, yeah. No, yeah. of him, yeah. So he um he was at uh, Luton Airport and and mm. now works for Docklands Light Railway and um and we got talking an awful lot about this and about um how how important it is to change that that conversation to change that language mm. and you know and even you know a health and safety officer or you know if that's you know you're there, yeah. we're there to enable you know we're there, mm. we're there to to support we're there to you know to help the business and so let's start using you know let's let's call them enablers let's call them whatever you know and and let's get um, i i'm a strong believer even let's let's just ditch health and safety you know let's you know because mm. you know if we're going to go out and learn you know if something's gone wrong and you want to learn from it you are going to learn so much more than just health and safety if you if you do the learning in the right way you're going to improve productivity profitability yeah. environmental performance quality the whole lot so so you know so let's you know let's change that let's change that around yeah and that's that's really interesting that that's what i what i do is i, I talk about whether it's health and safety or a safety department as being a trojan horse to bring in new ideas into the organization which are actually much broader than our traditional remit so we can bring in ideas around uh, systems thinking um, understanding complexity psychology sociology you know not necessarily at that high academic scientific level but distilling those theories and those ideas and those practices into a, into a level where it's actually relevant for the organization to tangibly apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I fully support what you just said. You know, we, we need to move beyond this idea that, and, and health and safety has become, and I, I know this is what James is trying to do, is trying to rebrand it, obviously. So it's become kind of like a joke industry, really, to the, to the broader public. Um, we need to we need to kind of show to organizations and, sh- and show to the public really that as as a profession we're actually here to to do a lot more than walk around with a clipboard and a high-vis jacket on telling people what they can and can't do mm. um our job is to is to bring new ideas into organizations because we follow a transdisciplinary science which looks at all of these different areas not just um the technical side of safety we can bring these ideas into organizations and we can actually help improve all emergent properties of work, not just safety. Yes, that might still always be our primary goal is to make organizations safer places to work. Mm-hmm. But actually, if we, if we adopt kind of a, a vocation of being a coach, of being a facilitator mm-hmm. that help organizations and their people move in a certain direction then we improve safety we improve quality as you said we improve productivity we improve efficiency because we stop seeing these goals as um fundamentally conflicting mm-hmm. i always say if we focus on the work then we actually can improve all aspects of the work if we just focus on one part of the work like is it safe is it productive then we're only ever going to improve that bit probably at the at the loss of another bit but if we focus on the work holistically and say, how can we make this work better mm-hmm. and leave off any of those properties and we just yeah. make it better, yeah. we make it safer, we make it more productive, et cetera. Mm. And the, you know, the, you know, when you actually look at the, the, the opportunity for people, you know, the, you know, coming into a, uh, you know, coming into a, a profession that's a little bit, uh, Sorry, my dog's barking a little bit because the postman's just arrived. So, uh, All right. she's, she, yeah. <laughs> Daisy always likes to make appearances on the podcast. So, um, uh, but um, no, you know, so what a role that that you've that you you've you had. You know, you you, you can basically 
go and talk to any part of the business, absolutely any part of the business and, and have really detailed, interesting conversations about how can you make that business better? That sounds like an amazing role to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, that for me is the, the, the best thing about being in a safety role for me was that you are not, you're not in a single department. You're actually in every department. You belong to every department. You, you can, like you say, you can talk to anyone. If you work in engineering, you might liaise with one or two other departments, mm. um, like operations or, or procurement. Mm -hmm. But the chances are you're not going to be talking to every single department. In safety, you have that opportunity. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm subscribing more and more to the adage that, you know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Mm. And it is very difficult as a safety person to, to, to listen more than you talk. But we do need to do that. Mm. You know, when you're out in the business, we need to be listening more than we're talking. Yes, mm -hmm. we need to be giving people ideas, but we should be doing that through questions. Yeah. We shouldn't be doing that through answers. Mm. So we should be asking twice as many questions as we give answers to. Mm -hmm. It's like we should be listening twice as much as we speak. And we need to be doing that within the entire business, not just within a traditional remit of operations and engineering. We need to be going beyond that and talking to marketing. We need to be talking to sales. We definitely need to be talking to procurement, HR, all of, you know, we, we, are, we are much bigger than we've traditionally set ourselves out to be. We, we have much more capability as a function than we've set ourselves out to be initially. Um, I like that when you talk about sales. I used to work in the coin industry and, uh, and we actually, you know, this is, this is a few years ago now. So I think we were, we were, we were quite forward thinking, but we, we spent a lot of time with our sales department trying to get the, the sales people that were going out onto our customer sites where our, our lorry drivers were going to go and deliver materials to actually to actually start to to explain to the customer you know what was actually coming you know a, a lorry turning up a, a you know a, a 20 25 ton or 30 ton vehicle is a big is a big vehicle on a small wheel inside and uh, you know so what does it actually mean you know what does it mean when this this guy's going to turn up and he's going to he's going to interact with you for a fairly short period of time but going to have quite a big impact and uh, and just getting them to think, just to think about that, and just getting the customer to think about that, was was a really was a really you know a good thing that we were doing, and uh, yeah, it's just so important. Just going back to your just going back to your point about um about listening as well. I think one of the one of the things that I've found in my career is um is that the middle management as well are are, are are buggers for for problem solving, you know, and they're almost like that. That's that's you know that they've been they've been sort of it's been ingrained in them. That they've got to sort all the problems out. They've got to sort the problems out. So when they, you know, when they, you know, when you're trying to introduce a new way of thinking um, into a business, you, you get this 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 area where where they struggle a little bit because because you're actually saying to, to to people at middle management level to start asking more questions and to start uh, start answering less, you know. So how do you? I mean, how do you? How do you make that work? You know, I mean, I mean, hey, do you agree with that first of all? But also, you know, how do you? Uh, you know, how do you? How do you influence people that are a little bit, a little bit lower down the, uh, the organization structure? I, I do agree with what you said, and based on my own experience, um, I think it's very, it's very normal, isn't it? Whether you're middle management or senior management, to want to have all the answers. Mm. I think you know the way that business has developed over over the the 20th century is that you get to a leadership position, whether it's middle or, or high, because you are able to solve problems because you're able to answer questions. Mm. Um, but we're now coming into this 
into this environment where it's becoming increasingly understood and accepted that leadership isn't about having answers. It's about asking better questions. So I think I'm starting to hear that a lot of these sort of master's programs like MBAs are starting to introduce that into their syllabus. You know, it's about being able to ask better questions and to facilitate problem solving within your team, not to be that kind of pinnacle of the department that everybody comes to with their problems for you to solve. I, I think it's just decades worth of, of uh, practice where that's been the case. And, it, and, it's, and it's like trying to turn a juggernaut. Um, it's going to take a, you know, every, every single interaction that, that's had in an organization will, will make a very small impact on moving that juggernaut in, in the new direction, which is about saying it's not about problem solving, you know, for the sake of it. It's about helping more of a collective understanding of the problem. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and part of the problem, part of the issue is that when problem solving is centralized under one person, there's no, there's, there's, a, there's a lack of diversity in the mm -hmm. way that that problem is thought about, the understanding of the context. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges for safety um, going forward is that, and this is what, what theories like safety too or safety differently talk about or resilience engineering is that yes, there are problems out there, but it's not, a, it shouldn't be up to a single central authority to dictate how to solve those problems. It should be about devolving um, responsibility down to the lowest, most suitable level to solve that problem and to almost crowdsource the problem solving. So, one of, one of the criticisms I hear of, you know, what we might broadly call the new view of safety is that it's about kind of just getting rid of any form of responsibility at the senior level and just saying, right, it's everybody on the front line. You just do whatever you want, which is absolutely not the case. The, what the new view is trying to say is let's ensure that the people who actually do the work have an opportunity to contribute to how we solve this problem and that diversity of thought is incredibly important in achieving that mm -hmm. so if you have one senior if you have one middle manager with a few supervisors and a few dozen frontline workers then actually you need everybody to be involved in that problem solving activity following a method that doesn't ensure that you go go straight to solution mm -hmm. you go i've got a superficial understanding of the problem here's the solution it's another procedure mm -hmm. it's about working through a process collectively collaboratively to identify how is the best way to solve this problem. And it might be a procedure. It might be to add a, for a new control, a new constraint, or it might be to remove one, mm. or it might be to fundamentally change the way that the work is done mm. or the way that or the way that work is, is, is understood. Mm. Also, that, being, uh, yeah, no, I get that. And I, I think it's also about being comfortable that a job can be done in different ways by different people. And, you know, being, yeah. being comfortable with that and not, and not having to have something so prescriptive and so written down. I mean, you know, I, you know, I look at, I look at risk assessments, safe systems of work. I look at these safe systems of work, but I thought if, if, um, if the company decided, or if the employees into the company decided one day, right, we are going to work to rule. Okay. You know, there's been a, there's been a big bust up about, about salaries and stuff like that. We're going to work to rule. How comfortable would the senior management be 
that they actually follow the rest the safe systems of work that have been put together by the uh, by the company to mm. do that job you know because <laughs> yeah. i think i think if they if they if they took that approach and actually looked at them through those eyes i think they'd say that these are actually not fit for purpose what we've got really yeah because yeah you know, <laughs> it, just, you know you can't do the job you know the interesting thing about the phrase work to rule is that it suggests that you will you will carry out the work exactly as it's been documented in every single possible way. Mm. Um, but in my experience of, of work to rule, it's more about it's more about on the contractual side of your job. So your job says that you will do 37 hours a week yeah. um, and you'll take these breaks and therefore any of the goodwill that you mm. used to provide, yeah. you just get rid of. Mm -hmm. um, but like you say, if, if, if people did actually work to rule in a very, very literal sense, mm then the work would not get done. No. It would grind to a halt because most of the time these rules, they just get in the way. They, they conflict with each other. You know, you, you, can have, you can have two rules which are actually in direct opposition to each other, mm. but the frontline worker is expected to follow both of them. Mm. How on earth do you achieve a successful product or you know, achieve that unit of productivity if you were to follow the rules? in a situation where two rules are actually diametric posed. Adam, thank you so much for that first uh, first part of that. Um, you know, this this preparing this strategy for um, for for moving forward is uh, you know is 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 not always the way to go, isn't it? You know, you, you know, people can spend time so much time putting this detailed program together, where in actual fact, you know, just go out and talk and listen, and then and then you know when you're listening, then adapt your language. I think I think that's really what you were saying there, and you know, introduce some new thoughts, introduce a new new uh, language. Um, get this uh, this collective approach to understanding a problem, and then you know I, I love that phrase, that phrase crowdsourcing the solution. I just love that, you know, getting people together to actually come and sort out how the business can get better. And there are just so many benefits for it, benefits from that, not just health and safety benefits right across the board. Um, you know, look, thank you so much. In episode two, we start talking a lot more about um, about trust and and also maybe about how we can transfer some of this uh, some of this stuff that's being done in high risk uh, industries like airlines and uh, um, mining that that kind of thing and actually start to move it over into uh, into more traditional businesses. Hey, thanks a lot, uh, Adam, and um, you know, looking forward to episode two. Thanks for listening to the Interesting Health and Safety podcast. You can follow and engage on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching the Interesting Health and Safety Community or go to www.influentialmg.com. And remember, let's make health and safety as important as everything else we do in business.